Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is a very special one. It features Raymond Jang, an analyst from Rask Australia, as he interviews Wayne Jones, co-founder and portfolio manager of Gaines Capital Management. This podcast was never expected to reach the Australian Investors Podcast airwaves, but it was so good that we just had to share it. In this discussion, Raymond asks Wayne how his investment philosophy has shifted over the years, how he finds great ideas, some of his favorite books, and many of the lessons that have been passed down by great investors gone before him. This is a fantastic episode for investors looking to learn what it takes to survive in investing for such a long period of time and do very well in the process. The duo discussed two great examples on the Australian stock market being Domino's Pizza and ARB Corp. If you own either of these stocks or you've come across them, it's a fantastic way to learn more about the businesses as Wayne has followed them for many years. Without further ado, I'll hand this over to Raymond Jang, analyst at Rask Australia. So good day, everyone, and welcome to the first edition of our Fund Manager interview series. I'm both happy and honoured to have Wayne Jones of Gaines Capital Management as my first guest. Um, over the past few months, I've trawled through all his quarterly um, updates for his fund, and it provides a lot of valuable and timeless lessons, especially for the investing community. So I hope this interview will shed more light on Wayne's um, investing knowledge experience. Um, welcome, Wayne. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Raymond. Yourself? Yeah, really good. Um, it's raining in Sydney, um, but I'm sure it's it's quite humid over in Queensland. <laughs> raining up here as well, but and a hot, sticky day, but that's just normal for Brisbane at this time of year. So, so yeah, the last time we spoke, I think you were busy you know, going through AGM, so it uh, must have been a really, really busy period. How, how was that? Um, good. Um, one, I mean, there's not been too many AGMs. Well, I've only actually been able to attend one AGM in person this year. It's all been virtual. And um, um, the one AGM that I could go to was PWR, which is actually happens to be my largest holding, so that was good. So um, um, the others have been virtual, which I, I, you know, there are pluses and minuses to that. And, um, and there's a bit of news in the, you know, in the media at the moment about it where you just don't get the same feel from the virtual meeting, you know, the questions and, and how the directors respond to those questions aren't the same. But then again, you can be at a meeting at 10 o'clock in Melbourne and the meeting at 11 o'clock in Sydney and um, and not miss anything. So there's pluses and minuses to, to both of them. Definitely pros and cons. I guess personally I haven't attended AGM like physically, so I do miss that you know physical interaction and the behavioural insights you potentially get from attending. Even just the body language of when they get asked yeah. the question sometimes just is the interesting thing. And then also... Um, often there'll be other investors there who you know I'd like to catch up with. You know, if I'm coming down from Brisbane to Sydney or Melbourne, mm. I'll see some other fund managers there, and, and, and I'd like to catch up with them at AGMs as well. So it's not just about the the company itself. So um, we won't bring up too much of the you know the stress from the quarterly uh, the AGMs. Sorry. Um, so I might uh, want to get started in trying to understand you know your um, personal and professional background. Um, how did you get started into investing and what made you so passionate about it, I guess? Well, I, I can't say it came from my parents. My father worked in an office and, and 
funnily enough, I've just always wanted to be an accountant from as long as I can remember. It was the only subject I was good at at school. I was a fairly average student, to say the least, at school. And um, but accounting just came very easily to me, and I just loved reading about business stories and things like that. When I went off to uni to study accounting, accounting, um, I used to go up to the library and there was a newsletter up there called Ridges, and I don't even know. I think that might have got it rolled into Huntley's or something like that these days. I'm not too sure. But anyway, it was a stock-tipping newsletter, and I used to go up there and read all the copies of that. And, um, and I remember the first stock I ever bought was a company called Olympic Tyres, which was a, um, a tyre manufacturer in uh, Melbourne. And Ridges sort of said, oh, I think this might be a takeover candidate. And sure enough, I know, probably a month or two after I bought the shares, Dunlop bought them. And I made about a week's wages in um, just by owning these shares. And I thought, how good is this? <laughs> Away I went. Um, unfortunately, the success was very short-lived because the next stock tip I got was from a guy who I knew in the gym, some resources stock where he said, oh, yeah, I know the directors, they've, they've found, um, I can't remember what it was, you know, it was gold or something, and uh, uh, you, should, you, know, you should get on this. And so I thought, beauty. So I invested in that and lost the whole lot. So, you know, we we're talking very small amounts of money, but... Uh, it was a lesson in, um, you know, you shouldn't always listen to other people when they're telling you they know things. So um, so that's where it came from. The 80s was a very special time. So that, that's in the 80s. And you had Christopher Scase and Robert Holmes at court and Ron Briley and um, Spalvins and Bondi, of course. Um, lots of stories, very flamboyant characters. I mean, they even created an index in the... Um, one of the ASX indexes became the Entrepreneurs Index. And, you know, if ever that was a siren that this is the top, you know, that was it. Um, and so I, I just was fascinated reading about those guys. We had lots of business magazines in those days as well. Mm. Yeah, Review Weekly was good. And the Fin Review was three times the size of what it is now. You don't, you'd get stories where there'd be three, four pages on a company where they would do these long piece investigative um, articles. So it was a different time. Yeah, made money, lost money. I, I remember I had shares in FAI Insurances, which was the old Larry Adler business. And of course, it went broke, and so I lost money there. And so it didn't put me off. But then in the 90s, about 1990, 1991, I accidentally bought a book called The Money Masters by John Train. And Money Masters has about 12 chapters in it, and I still have a copy on the bookcase. And the very first chapter was about Warren Buffett. And that was just a light bulb moment. And so once I read that, Walter Schloss, Tweedy Brown, I thought, ah, okay, I'm an accountant. These are businesses, not, you know, stock prices in the, on the newspaper. And it all just twigged. So from about the 90s, early 90s, I became much more um, methodical in how I went about my investing and, and, uh, and what I was looking at. And I just love, I often say to people, some guys like looking under the, Bonnet at how motors run in cars. I like reading annual reports and seeing how companies run <laughs> the same thing. So, um, yeah, so from the 90s, I was much more methodical and I had, I wrote in those days, you had to write away to Berkshire Hathaway to get their annual reports. Um, and so I did that and I, then I plowed through all the old annual reports. Um, there was a company at the time um, which Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger had invested in called Source Capital. So I wrote away to them. It was like a, an LIC in, mm. in America. It was run by a guy called George McCallis, and um, he unfortunately got killed in a motorbike accident um, oh, probably 20 years ago. But he was a very good investor, and he was very kind and wrote back to me and used to send me all these annual reports and things like that. So I just I had about a decade there of just really starting to assimilate into the that Buffett, Munger, Fisher. I, I've got to admit, 
I just find Ben Graham incredibly dry. I, I don't, I've read The Intelligent Investor as everyone has, but it really didn't resonate with me, except for probably the Mr. Market thing. Um, I'm much more Phil Fisher kind of a person where you're just looking for a business that's going to grow and how a business runs. And, um, and so that was that. And then about 2002, late 2002, a friend of mine and I decided we were, we were both investing, we were both buying very similar companies, and so we decided to start GAINS. And that's GAINS is nothing to do with capital GAINS. GAINS is just an abbreviation of our two last names. So uh, his name is Gaunt and my name is Jones, and so we just stuck the GA and the NES together, and that's GAINS. And, um, and so, um, yeah, and away we went. And, um, yeah. Oh, very so, nice. Yeah. I guess, yeah, at the start of your journey, you had a couple of investing lessons that you kind of learned from and it's uh, evolved over time. So, and well, Luckily, they might have been expensive lessons in terms of the percentage of my net worth that I lost, yeah. but luckily they were just very small amounts. You know, we, we're talking in the thousands of dollars sort of thing. So, you know, nothing that was irrecoverable from. And I mean, I think everyone's got to have those lessons. I think if you have too much success early in the piece, you probably end up with a bit of hubris and think, how easy is this? And I think we're seeing a little bit of that on Twitter these days where you've got uh, these FinTwit guys trading things and thinking, how easy is this? And Yeah. Um, Did those losses ever deter you from or affect your appetite for investing, like your no, passion? Or? No, no. no. They, were, they were just lessons. Yeah, you'd sort of say, yeah, of course, you know. Yeah. Um, I actually remember, you know, Back in the um, 80s, coming up and seeing Chris Case, um, he had his head office here in Brisbane because I could not get my head around the cash flow statement, how this Quintex worked. And, you know, he basically was, uh, I won't say he was rude to me, but, you know, he was just like, well, you just don't understand. And so I never ever bought shares in um, Quintex, but it was just, uh, I, I just thought you just got to learn how these things work. And they're really businesses. And, um, yeah. That mm. was- yeah, that's a very interesting comment because, just going back to what we were talking about, attending AGMs physically, yes. it seemed like the way he spoke and responded to you was potentially a red flag. Uh, very much so, yes. Yeah. I ever remember to, actually, no, I think I may have gone to one of his AGMs. I can't remember now. Um, yeah. I certainly went to, um, uh, yeah, there's some AGMs back in those mm. days. They were very dismissive of shareholders, and um, and it was only okay. because of the fund managers like um, Peter Morgan, you know, you know, calling him grumpy, and um, you know, guys like that who would ask questions and and sort of call these guys out. Um, it really relied on people like that, and and there were you know good investigative journalists at the time too. So yeah, but no, they never heard me. It was just a, it was just all a learning curve. Yeah. And once I discovered Buffett and Munger and Phil Fisher. I could sort of see where I was going wrong and what, you know, the way to approach things. And honestly, since then, it's just been um, much, I won't say it's been easier, but I can sort of understand what I'm trying to do. It's not, you know, it feels like I've always progressed since then. I haven't always made money, but I've always progressed. (laughs) (laughs) It's always good. So I was having a look at your um, professional, I guess, resume on LinkedIn. You've got an interesting um, timeline there with them. Um, you started off, oh, not start off as, but you kind of your first direct investment experience was a freelancer analyst role at Intelligent Investor? Or? Uh, yeah, so yeah, that came about. So um, Clive was writing for Money Magazine and he just said to me at the time, he said, oh, you should write for one of these guys. You know, you, you, you know how to write about the stock market. You know as much as any of these guys. 
Mm. And so at the time, uh, Intelligent Investors put out an ad and said, anyone who wants to write for us, contact us. So I contacted them and I spoke to Greg Hoffman and um, he said, look, just send me a send me a piece of a company that you like, uh, which I didn't at the time, it was Reese. And, um, and he liked it and... and um, and so I started writing for Intelligent Investor. So um, I was working, obviously, at the time. And so I would write that, you know, on the weekends and night time. And I would write about, I would mostly write about the small cap um, area. So there were two of us, James Greenhouse and myself, um, who wrote about the small companies. And then Greg and other guys like James Carlyle were writing about the larger businesses. And, um, and I still speak to those guys on a regular basis um, you know, today. And so, you know, Greg and I sort of swap share tips and things like that. So, um, but that was interesting. Um, and I did that for a while and then it got to be a conflict with the fund. So um, mm. I sort of had a situation where I wanted to write about the companies I liked, but if I wrote about the companies I liked, I couldn't trade in those companies after I'd written about them for a period of time. And I thought, well, I'm actually putting my unit holders at a disadvantage by doing that. And mm. so I was, you know, parted ways with Intelligent Investor you know, purely on that basis. I, I had to put the unit holders before my writing sort of thing. So, but no, it was interesting. And at, at that time, so in, um, just to sort of do a loop on that with the business side of things. So in the mid 90s, I was working for a large public company that was buying private hospitals. And I was a, um, a finance manager. And I got involved in doing the acquisitions for uh, some of their hospitals in Queensland, probably about seven or eight acquisitions in that period. Then, um, no secret that that was Maine Nicholas, and then Peter Smedley came along and he wanted to change everything. And, and my role was going to get taken to Melbourne. I didn't want to move to Melbourne. And so um, I left and I got involved with a, um, there was a syndicate that were looking at buying a, a private hospital up here. And they said, yeah, would you be interested? Can you come do some work on the valuation for us? And would you be interested in the role? So, um, and that's, I ended up. Um, being involved in that syndicate that bought um, a private hospital up here. It was an inner city private hospital, and we ran that for quite some time. And very, um, and we sold that to HealthScope after mm-hmm. years, and um, yeah, moved on from there. So, um, and these days I have some interest in some um, you know home care business as well, and and uh, things like that. So I'm I'm a bit like Warren Buffett, where I think being a business owner makes you a better investor. And you know, being an investor makes you a better business owner because, honestly, when you own a hospital, it's a very capital-intensive business. And so you might have a PL that's showing you that you're making money, but you've got your hand in your pocket all the time because the doctors are saying, oh, yeah, they've got this new, new machine that goes bing. We need one. And then you say, oh, well, how much is that? Oh, that's $500,000. And think, well, gosh, you know. So, um, so having owned a very capital-intensive business, it really makes you appreciate the good businesses that don't. Uh, um, require a lot of capital when they come along. You know, the other the businesses that just throw off cash. Um, so I think that's been very. I'm, Warren Buffett's in the same boat. We bought Berkshire Hathaway, which was a you know an investing mistake 101. And mm. but he probably needed to own Berkshire to realise the other business. You know, to go and buy C's and those sorts of things where they were much better businesses to own than mm. an old textile mill, which you were just going to have to keep throwing capital at. So sometimes you, you need that just to, to give you a bit of an education. Yeah, it's that's, a very interesting insight, I think, especially for aspiring analysts or people who want to get into industry. Like, I think it's very important to have that business knowledge, I think, first rather than 
going straight into, you know, valuation or um, all the technical stuff that comes with being an analyst? Businesses do not run on, I mean, you need financial statements to, to know how the business is going, but there's so much more to a business than spreadsheets. You know, it's, it's customers, it's competitors, it's, um, you know, staff morale. It's a whole bunch of things which you just, business is not just this graph that goes up and to the right all the time. Mm. Yeah. You can sit there in an office and model the future of a business, but that's just not how it works. And I think, I, I think it must be mandatory. You have to go and, you know, run a business and probably even go broke. Um, mm. if you go and do these things it's um i mean i often say to people you know go and you know, get your own business and if you go broke before you're 30 it's no big deal because you can start again it's not going to damage you it's it's mm. leave it to go and who when they cash in their superannuation fund at 55 and go and buy a business and they've mm. never run a business in their entire life they're the ones who are you know i would caution against doing that having a, having a good old red hot crack when you're 22, 25, and if you go broke, so what? You know, just have another. Learn a lesson and then you move on. Yeah, on the point, on that point, I think about, you know, potential stress that comes with, you know, working in the funds management industry. Like, is there anything um, you do outside of work and investing that helps you take your mind off? I've got to say, I don't, I don't find funds management stressful, but that's because of the situation I've created around myself. You know, I don't have any other people with me it's it's me um, i'm not part of a big institution that's trying to gather assets i don't have to present to an investment committee every month and you know why did you buy that why has that gone down you know I, I don't have that sort of hassle in my life and i've done that deliberately um, but in terms of personal interests um, i run most mornings of the week with um, a bunch of guys and have done for years and years so every morning we get out and run about eight or ten k along the river here and um, and they're good because most of those guys are business people. So uh, one of the guys owns an insurance broking business, so it gives me a bit of insight into how the insurance broking industry is going. So it's no accident that PSC and Ausbrokers or AUB are in the portfolio. Um, yeah, another guy. So they've all got business interests. We sit around. We probably spend more time having coffee, talking after the run than we spend running. Um, mm-hmm. So I run every day. Um, I read a lot. Um, so I probably read thirty five. 45 books a year and then I, um, I also I'm, I'm learning Italian at the moment so um, I'm reasonable at French and now I thought I'll have a crack at learning Italian so I can actually understand uh, what they're <laughs> over there so um, so yeah I've got some other interests outside and obviously you've got family and things like that and, uh, and friends I catch up with but uh, they're the sort of I find the running every morning is quite um, quite good clear the head yeah the languages are a bit of a challenge and uh, and the reading's just a nice little diversion so is there any reason why you picked a talent? Because um, I loved French yeah. and I love the way French sounds when people speak it. So I've learned that and I'm, I'm reasonable at French and um, um, and then Italian because, well, A, I like Italy and I love the Renaissance period and Florence and that sort of thing, but also because Italian and French and Spanish, are, they're all Romance languages, so they're all quite similar. So my uh, ambition is to learn it really I should be able to learn it fairly quickly because the grammar is almost identical. I don't have to sit there. and So I'm sitting in an Italian class at the moment. We're going through grammar lessons and they're all struggling with it, saying, you know, why do these Italians talk like this? You know, and <laughs> it's exactly the way the French talk as well. So I, I, it, the grammar is coming very, very easily to me. So it's really just an exercise in 
pronunciation and vocabulary for, you know, I'm just sort of getting up to speed with. So, um, yeah, so I, I just like that neck of the world. You know, I like that part of the world. Um, yeah. And I just like that Renaissance history, um, you know, when Italy were in the, had their little uh, golden patch for about 100 years. Very nice. Hopefully you can get a chance to, you know, go back there. Ah, uh, yeah, well, that's planned. Probably about twelve. I'd say it'd be about twelve months before we get back there. But um, yeah, yeah, great. I think when I spoke with you, you were very generous with your time and sharing your resources, because I think investing is an occupation where you're constantly learning. Um, learning never stops. Um, so I think it'd be great for people listening to understand you know, what were the key resources and I guess had the most profound impact on your invest, investment philosophy? So um, I'm assuming anyone either reading or listening to this podcast is interested in the stock market. Um, but if you even go back a step before that, um, books like um, The Richest Man in Babylon, um, I think it just it required reading. Yeah, if you can't, If you can't save money, you've got a problem in your life, whether you're interested in the stock market or not. So, um, And there's been a book written in the last year or two, The Psychology of Money by uh, Morgan Housel. Yeah, I just think they're required reading for young people. You, the first thing you've got to learn is can you save money? You've got to be able to live, spend less than you, you earn. Um, so, and that will also get you in the psychology of you know, having some you know, rainy day money there. If you move on from that, um, yeah, I, I found Phil Fisher... Uh, common stocks and uncommon profits was yes a, a, a real game changer for me. Um, Shelby Davis, the Davis Dynasty, that doesn't get too much airplay by many people, but Shelby Davis was uh, a public servant working in the insurance business in the government, um, uh, looking at insurance companies back in the um, must have been the fifties. And, um, and he just spent a, a career. He left his public service job and with $50,000 from his borrowed off, off his wife's family, he just started investing in the stock market and he turned that $50,000 that 50, into $900 million by the time he died. Never controlled a company his entire life. He was just a passive shareholder in all these businesses. I think he, he sat on the board of Geico at one point. So mm -hmm. he and Warren Buffett did cross paths a couple of times. But he just turned this $50,000 into $900 million. It's an extraordinary investment record. And it was purely by just doing this slow, patient investing, you know, doing things that you understand, not chasing things. And the interesting thing about I found about Shelby Davis is in 1974, he, um, um, in 74, market crash came along and he, lost, he was about, worth about $50 million at that point in time. And he lost 60% of his net worth in the 74 crash, you know, that where... Um, Warren Buffett, um, he'd already wound up his partnership before then because he was worried about the market. Charlie Munger lost about 50% of his um, unit holders' money. and uh, But he was six, so he was about 60, 65 at the time, and he lost 60% of his net wealth. Now, he's still worth $20 million, but, you know, the, that was a big thing. But he just came back from that. He went from then $20 million up to $900 million by the time he passed away. And his grandson has now just been... Um, uh, elected onto the board of Berkshire Hathaway, so Chris Davis. So, um, so I thought that book was really that was really a light bulb moment um, mm. for me. I think anything of Charlie Munger, whether you read Charlie's Almanac or whether you just go onto YouTube and watch any of his speeches, that guy is. I think he's brilliant. I, Warren Buffett is a brilliant businessman, but I think Charlie Munger has worked out 
I think he's a bit more of a rounded individual in some senses of the word, and he's just worked out the things you need in life to have a, a, a successful life. And um, so any of Charlie Munger's speeches, I mean, YouTube has been the greatest invention in the last 20 years where you can just go on there and see all the, you know, watch these guys giving, delivering speeches. If someone, uh, one of the ones recently that I've, I've quite enjoyed was um, Chris Mayer's book, um, 100 Baggers. Um, and I've seen a few fund managers now, um, Monish Pabrai was talking the other day where he said, I've gone from looking for 50 cent dollars, you know, 50 cent, um, you know, a stock selling for 50 cents, which might go to a dollar and double my money and move on, to, well, I'm happy to pay a dollar if I think the thing will be worth $10 or $100 down mm -hmm. the track. I've probably always sort of thought that way for quite some time, but seeing that articulated in that book was um, interesting. And the other book I quite liked was um, Peter Thiel's Zero to One, which mm -hmm. is more about startups, but it makes you think about business models. Um, he had this saying, um, competition is for losers, which is, it sounds rather arrogant, but what he was saying is all successful businesses don't have competition. Um, it's all the unsuccessful businesses, it's the reason why they're unsuccessful is because they, they didn't avoid competition. You know, there was competition there that eroded their profit margin. So it makes you really think about how businesses work. Oh, look, if you can uh, get through his reading, um, uh, Taleb Skin in the Games, uh, his writing is insufferable, but his message is quite strong and, and quite good. And, oh, and another couple that never get airplays, um, Competition Demystified by um, Greenwald. Now he's written a few books around um, Buffett. Um, again, that sort of talked about how you should look for businesses in niche markets that can dominate their space because then they'll get these profit margins you don't have to worry about. And Chancellor wrote a book called Capital Returns. And um, Ed Chancellor's written, a, he wrote a book called Devil Take the Hindmost, which is a history of all these financial speculations, you know, these bubbles and things. But he wrote this book called Capital Returns, um, which is about looking at how the supply of capital in an industry will affect your return. So there's no point investing in a business. Well, I shouldn't say no point, but it's always going to be harder to make a return. If you take the insurance industry, for example, anytime it looks like that business is going to be attractive, capital just floods into that market, pushes the prices down, and no one makes any money. Mm. You know, they haven't got good underwriting practices. And what he was sort of getting at in his book is that it's not just about demand for the product, it's how much supply can come into that market to make, you know, to kill the, you know, or, or satisfy all that demand and some, and then you're left with, you know, you know, a competition to the bottom sort of thing. So, so they're the sorts of things. I mean, as I say, I, I found Ben Graham fairly dry reading. Mm. Not mine. I wouldn't. I've read the book once, and I probably will never read again in my life. <laughs> other books, I actually, I, I think I've probably read the Davis Dynasty four or five times now. Charlie Munger, I, you know, I just, I probably not a day in my life. I don't watch a bit of Charlie Munger on YouTube. So, mm. sorts of things. You just got to have these mental models, and um, you know, one of Charlie's things which I really admire about him is you just got to have equanimity when you're when you're on the bad end of something. You just got to have some equanimity about it. You know, mm. doesn't know you. So, yeah, yeah. I feel because Owen did a podcast interview with uh, Peter Pan of Castlereagh Equity. And he felt that from analyzing in Munger and Buffett, he felt, as you said, Munger was a much more well-rounded individual in terms of both investing and 
outside in terms of his personal life. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a very interesting comment you make because whilst Buffett has been extremely successful, it seems like he may have maybe put too much weight or time towards investing. Uh, look, I think, you know, sometimes you just got a personality, you know, he was obsessive about it. Um, it was mm. a competition to him and that's just how he led his life. And, yeah, you can't criticise him for that. But I, when I look at it, I just look and think, well, I would like something a bit more in my life than that. And even if you look at Ben Graham, Ben Graham was not in it for the money. I um, mean, mm. he shared all his stock tips with everyone. Anyone who would listen, he would tell them what he was buying. He could speak three or four languages. He could have been a mathematics professor at university. He translated Greek. You know, um, the guy, he wrote a screenplay for a theatre. I mean, you know, mm. but, you know, the guy had many, many interests in life and it wasn't about the money. And funnily enough, if you look at Buffett, you know, he's had more money than he's ever needed in his entire life for probably almost his entire life. Well, he was a millionaire at the age of 30, which in those days would have been well and truly enough in the 60s. So he's led 60 years where he's never going to use the money he's made, but he was just so focused on that. But I, I just look at Charlie Munger and I think, oh, he's probably got life a little bit more sus in, in the sense that I, you know, Warren Buffett might be better at looking at businesses and predicting them, but I think Charlie Munger's got a better handle on the psychology of, you know, what life's about. Mm. As I mentioned, uh, Zero to One and as a competition demystified as, you know, those key books where you talk about potentially centralises, centres on the idea of fighting unfair, you want to be fighting unfair fights, yeah. which is, you know, I guess termed by Yen Liao of Aravat yes. yes. Capital. Um, and I think he's coming up to Australia in the yeah. Sun's Hearts and Minds Conference. Yeah. Um, so that strongly resonates with, with your philosophy. Yes. Now. Actually, he's done a couple of videos. I think he did yeah. microcaps. So. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Um, yeah, fighting unfair fights, that's what you want. And that, so that's so when you look at my larger holdings, PWR, ARB, they, they just dominate their space in what they do, and you can see that in the profit margins. I'm not... I, I'm always sceptical when someone says, oh, I've got 1% of the market and I'm going to try and get 10% of the market. Well, hmm. a whole bunch of other people, with the other 99%, they're trying to do the same thing. <laughs> so yeah. you know, you've got to work out why are you so special that you might get 10%. Whereas with, say, something like Google, the moment you get to 50%, your search algorithm is just going to be better than every other search algorithm in, algorithm on the market. And so it just becomes a self-perpetuating cycle where you will dominate the market. It's just there is no other way for an, another search engine search engine to be better than you. I like how you use the insurance industry example to show, you know, how important it is to think about that. And reading your December um, 2020 quarterly letter where you reflected on your process, I think one of the key lessons that I really took out from that was um, not falling for what's hot in the market and when it comes to financial services industry yes. um you, you did fall into i guess yes. that that hot trap um yes. so to speak yeah look um there is no barriers to entry in financial services and that's um i mean you know the banks are a barrier to entry in themselves as a group but you know if you get the the irrits with commonwealth bank you know you'll just walk across the road to the ANZ and when you got the irrits with them you walk across the bank to road to, to west bank i mean there's just capital is not a barrier for entry in most industries 
because mm. people will find capital. Yeah. Uh, you've just uh, you've you've got to think about. I, I always think about the supply equation even more than the demand equation. Yeah, we're already seeing it with a lot of the brokerage platforms that are coming onto the market. Yeah. So yeah, it's oh, and I combine it. Look, Afterpay has been a brilliant business, and um, those two guys are to be congratulated. But buy now, pay later as a concept. Yeah, um, I've never owned Afterpay, and good luck to the guys who have. But I just sort of see, well, there'll be just so many copycat me too type businesses that, well, the next guy just come along, offer a little bit less, and um, yeah, maybe Afterpay are, are that entrenched. They offer some value to to merchants, but um, to me, that that just looks like a competitive space. Run, you know, you've got the banks wanting to do it now. You've got the Visa card, you know, Mastercard, and Visa card talking about doing it. It just appears to me, so yeah that could become another mm. example where someone's made a ton of money on Afterpay, but that doesn't mean you make a ton of money in the other, other companies mm. in that space. Very interesting. Um, yeah, I might be jumping the gun here, but in terms of finding investment ideas, it seems like would you start on an industry basis or does it? No, it goes back to... 15, 20 years ago, I used to do a lot of, you know, I'd just run a screen and just say, okay, I want to know every company's got a return on equity more than 15%, you know, and I'd go, oh, okay, there's a company, I'll look at that. I don't do that sort of thing anymore because a lot of businesses, they just don't, the sort of things I tend to end up buying these days sometimes just don't screen very well mm -hmm. and you can see the potential in the business on a screen. Um, so now it's more a case of, well, I, I don't even look at it on, I wouldn't go so far as to say I look at it on the industry basis but by owning certain things, you, you tend to know something about the industry and then you'll go and look at the other people in the industry and think, oh, okay, well, that's a good business too. Um, so having owned AUB, that allowed me to go and buy PSC recently. So, um, you know, I sort of feel comfortable with the industry, how it works, and, you know, what I'm looking at in, in the financials, that sort of thing. Um, so I don't look at an industry. I, sit, I never take a macro um, down you know, um, top-down sort of view of the world. You know, mm -hmm. someone says to me, oh, lithium's going to be really, really big because we've got, we've got to make a ton of car batteries. You should be in the lithium industry. That that's just doesn't resonate with me. I, I want to see where's the competitive advantage for that business. Because when I buy a business, my turnover is just so low. I'll, I'll own a business, well, ARB I've owned for 20 years, recently mm -hmm. almost 20 years. Um, so when I look to buy something, I'm, I'm looking to buy for 5, 10 years plus sort of thing and so i'm not looking for something where okay well it might be really good for this year and next year but you know what happens after that i've, I've just got no line of sight over what their business might look like in five years time so i just don't tend i don't take a macro view of the world and there are just some industries where you get good operators um, and they will make they will find a way to make money in an industry that is tough, um, Graham Turner and Flight Center comes to mind. Travel agents never made much money, but he found a way to make money. And so he was a guy that was worth backing. But um, as an industry, the travel agency industry has just always been littered with guys who went broke. So um, so in terms of once you, once you like, maybe you get an itching about a business and it kind of makes you interested do you have a checklist or a process that you kind of go through? Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm obviously reading a lot of ASX announcements and, you know, things, I'll just go and quickly look at a lot of businesses, but I'm actually sort of filtering businesses out of 
I'm looking to to exclude businesses because I'm I'm always fully invested. So I've really got to find something. My opportunity cost is my worst idea in my current portfolio. Um, so I've got to find if I find something, it's got to be better than that. So I'm just I'm just always filtering things out. So I'll, I'll just go and look at a PL, you know, do they make money? I'll try and work out how they make money. Um, is it clear? One of the questions I always ask myself is um, how could they fudge the profits in this business? So to take an take an example, and, and, and I'm not saying this ever happened, but something like um, Credit Corp and Pioneer Credit where you're buying debt ledgers, how you amortise those ledgers is very, very important as to what profit you come up with at the end of the day. If you're, you can be quite aggressive in, in not writing those debt ledgers off and your profits will look very good, or you can be very conservative in how you write those ledgers off and your profits will look bad. The business is still the same because you're bringing the same cash flow in, but the profit loss statement can look very different under two different management teams. So I always ask myself, how could these guys fudge the profits? And so, therefore, what should I be looking for? What what are the key things to be looking for in the state and the financial statements? One way of looking, one way of doing that is just go and look at how much tax they paid in the cash flow statement. And if they didn't pay much tax or any tax, the tax office doesn't think they made any money. Mm. And if the tax office doesn't think they made any money, then probably chances are they didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I just, I'm looking for those sorts of things just as a first glance. Um, I look at the remuneration report, you know, how do these guys pay themselves? Do they sort of, I tend to go for founders, so founder-owned businesses, but that's not to say just because you're a founder, that means you're a great investment. There are some founders who put themselves ahead of the queue, the shareholders, and they're, you know, they're taking money off the table before they want to share it with the rest of the shareholders sort of thing. So Mm. I'll go and look at the remuneration report. If there's some red flags in that, it's just a no-go straight away. I'm not going mm. to go, oh, well, he pays himself a bit too much, but I, I'll, you know, I'll put up with that. I just don't like that sort of thing because those sorts of guys, if they do it now, they'll just keep doing it and it'll just irk you for the rest of your, you know, while you're a shareholder, it'll just irk you. I'll even go and look at who's a, who's a shareholder and, you know, I'll go and look at the top 20 shareholders at the back of the report, see if there's any smart guys that I sort of think are smart guys who are shareholders on the shareholder list. Um, so I'm just sort of running through those sorts of things. And then I, I'm trying to get a mental model in my head of, well, what does this business look like in an industry? You know, is this a really competitive industry or is, have they got some sort of lock? Or is there some sort of niche here that they've got that you know, the market hasn't woken up to? So, um, um, yeah, there are sorts of things. I'm just, as I, I'm, I'm reading these things. I can go through a thing quite quickly and probably in 20 minutes, half an hour, Go, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this looks like I should, you know, I should put this on my watch list and go and do a bit more of a deeper dive. Or no, that's rubbish. And just you know, move on. I don't I don't need to spend a lot of time just going through those checklists and um, working out what I'm interested in. And I've got to sort of understand you as well. I mean, you could come to me with the best business idea and say, Wayne, this is a 10-bagger, lay down the zair. I go, yeah, but I don't understand how they make money. You know, like I just don't know mm-hmm. what it look like in 10 years' time. If you go and make 10 times your money, good luck to you. And I'm quite happy with that. But, it, you know, it's just not my go. I, I want to be able to explain to people, yeah, I understand this is this is how they make money and what they do. Is your ability to quickly work out uh, whether or not a business is a good investment, do you think that has been developed through expanding your circle of confidence? And also, um, I guess, applying again Lao's knowledge or approach to investing doing a lot of case studies potentially and having invested 
in a lot of businesses you've built that mental model life is life as humans we recognize patterns even language is patterns you you say the same things every time you don't try and think mm. how, how will i say that so when you're looking at financials or statements as an accountant you're just looking for patterns all the time and if something doesn't feel right to me you know i don't need to go and look too far a lot of people only concentrate on the pnl and the pnl is one of the easiest things to fudge in accounting um you know there's the old joke where alan bond used to his accountant used to come into him at the end of the year and and um the accountant and so so how much he'd so say um you know how much are we going to make this year and and the, the accountant would say how much do we want to make this year because you could just fudge and also easy but it's holistic you know the what you put in the pnl has to go into the balance sheet somewhere and always and those should also be reflected in the cash flow statement so you can look at the pnl but then I'll go and look at the balance sheet as well not because I'm looking for assets or anything like that but what doesn't look right if it if I don't think there's something right about the pnl and then I'll go and look at the cash flow statement which is you know we'll also tell you um, as simple things like did they pay any tax last year or is the tax in the pnl something that resembles the tax in the cash flow statement and if not why not they have big and then you go and look in the balance sheet you know they have big tax deferred tax liability so and a deferred tax liability is something where they've told the tax office no we didn't make any money this year but they're told the shareholders oh we did make a whole ton of money but mm. we deferred that tax and we're going to pay it down the track so you're just looking for those sorts of little tells in the financial statements Mm. and that's, that's just pattern recognition from years and years of looking at it and would you also say that applies to how you evaluate management teams as well and you pick up um i guess certain behaviors and um personality traits that they've come across in you know screening previous businesses as well yeah um well that that's obviously a fairly big tell if they're, if they're very aggressive on the accounting and they're yeah. like, very promotional in their presentations to the ASX. I I have this little saying if you watch a presentation like an annual results presentation or whatever that's like an open house display thing like that's the real estate agent giving you the brochure when you look at the wall. I actually look at the building inspectors report to see what they found. Mm. And um so you look at those things but you just that gives you you're not looking at those for information you're looking at them to get a measure of the management. So if, for example some CEOs you've got to dial down their ambitions you know like you think okay well you've said that but they you this is where you've traditionally you know you've missed by this much but other CEOs you got to dial up I mean Graham Turner at Flight Center was the most conservative CEO if he said oh we're going to make this amount of money you just knew it was going to be that plus something he's just he was just always that conservative so you're just dialing these personalities of these CEOs and you know as to what they look like but and then you're just looking for tells in how they behave so if someone's just being very promotional and you know business is so easy we're just winning so much you know um new customers and that sort of thing you think oh business doesn't tend to be that easy unless you've got something very very unique so yeah, i'm just looking for those sorts of things yeah because i'm actually reading um quality investing at the moment which is something that you had recommended on twitter um previously um and it talks about how you can tell a lot by um how management speak about their competitors yes. um if they speak speak about their competitors in a distasteful way then it's most of the time it's a reflection of the character yes yeah uh, yeah. Um, yeah i mean there's always most businesses have a decent competitor somewhere lurking around them that they've sort of got their eye on and um 
I also think um, another big lesson um, for anyone in general um, who's interested in investing is I think people who start investing tend to focus too much. I think personally as well, I focus too much on valuation, getting the price right. Um, and it's it's hard psychologically to get away from that because you often it's a tangible number that you, you can attach um, your mind to. So, um, and you told me that if you get, you know, the business right and the management team right, the third aspect of it being the valuation, then um, that won't be the thing that, you know, breaks you ah, over yeah. the long term. Yeah. So Buffett has said that himself. He's looking for three things. He wants a, a business he understands with a management team he trusts at a price that's, you know, reasonably attractive. And he said, and the price is the least important of those three things. So, um, and I, I would imagine he's learned that from Charlie Munger. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I... I because I'm going to own these things for a long time, I can be slightly wrong on the price or uh, my expectations or, and that won't matter over the long term. Yeah, maybe I might lose a point of, you know, percentage here or there, but you've got to be right about the business. And, in fact, I don't even, it's funny that, you know, so many analysts and fund managers focus on the valuation and yet most of them have huge turnover and only hold the stock for, you know, months if, you know, luckily for the whole mm. year. And even then you've got to think, well, what did it matter what the valuation was? <laughs> own it. And you basically just rented the stock for 12 months. Um, so, yeah, so valuation is the least important of those uh, criteria. I mean, I'm not going to pay stupid money for a business. It's got to look reasonable. But using a PE ratio as a heuristic and your biggest, you know, the most important heuristic that you use, it's just a huge mistake because, as I say, your profit and loss statement is the easiest thing to fudge if you're going to fudge the numbers. You can't fudge what the industry is, you know, how that how you how the company's going to perform and what the industry looks like and those sorts of things. That's that's far more important. And who cares if you you, you might have looked at the business when they've had a bad year. Uh, well, when we first bought Domino's, you know, I, I went and met Don May and I just walked out of that meeting. And I thought he was the best CEO I've ever come across in my entire life, and I still think that 15 years later. But they just had a bad year. They, they had a, they'd gone into Victoria, marketing campaign had failed. They'd spent some money you know, looking at Europe. And you know, the profits weren't great. Well, certainly not what the market had expected. But that was the best time to buy it. Not, not, so you know, using a PE ratio at that point in time was not, not the thing to use. And the same as you know, looking at Berkshire Hathaway after Warren Buffett's taken over you know, Berkshire Hathaway. Looking at the profit and loss statement for Berkshire Hathaway wasn't the thing. It was, you know, what can this guy do, um, you know, going forward? And it, it, at that time, he only had a textile mill, but if you knew he was going to go into insurance and those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, valuation is just not the most important thing. If you get a company that can, can compound its capital at really attractive incremental rates, that will fix a multitude of things on, on valuation. Mm. Yeah, Domino's is a very interesting one because I only had a brief look at it. And I guess during that time you allude to when they were trying to open up in Victoria and also Europe, were there, what were the, I guess, the signs that it was a, it was a high quality business at that point in time? Um, Don May. <laughs> yeah. It was a game of inches and he knew every inch he had to, to claim to make that business a great business. 
and and you just knew that where he was going. To, so when he was going off to Europe, he said, Wayne, I'm not taking Domino's Australia to Europe. So I'm taking a 50-year-old American brand that's tried and tested around the world to France. And the French people may not like Americans, but they like American culture. And, um, and that's probably you know, representative of a lot of countries around the world. This American culture has really taken over in most, you know, Western culture has really taken over. Mm. Um, and so you could just see that France is so much bigger than this market, you know, the Australian market, and how successful he had been. I mean, some of the stories he told me of how he had started, I mean, he started as a pizza delivery driver when he was a training. Mm. And just one of the things, I'll digress here, but one of the things he did when he started buying his foot, you know, he worked up to be a manager. And then when he bought his first store, um, what he did, he didn't go and look at how many sales they were making. He went and had a look at their phone records to see how many phone calls they missed. And so then what he said is, okay, well, all I need to do is stick more phones in and more, more staff on the front counter. They'll take more orders and I'll just double my business. And that's what he did. So every franchise, every store he went and bought, he would look at the phone records and then he would just double the number of phones he put into the business. And so he ended up with some of the most successful Domino's franchise stores on the planet. So when you've got someone who's that clever mm. and now taking this business mm. and they run with it, you just think, I've just got to back the jockey here. This is going to be a really good business. And I used to get this comment that people used to say to me, but are you eating their pizzas? Like, how can you buy Domino's shares which <laughs> of a crap? Yeah, but I'm not buying the pizzas. I'm buying the business model. McDonald's, I wouldn't eat in McDonald's from one end of the year to the other, mm. but the business model. Mm. And so you're just thinking about this the wrong way. You, you, you're not buying the product, you're buying the business model. And um, so you could just see that. I mean, where I got Domino's, well, I made two huge mistakes. Well, I made one huge mistake with Domino's. That was selling it. Mm. After, you know, we tripled our money and thought, oh, it's expensive now. We'll, we'll move on. Big mistake. Um, and then when I bought back in, I still thought Europe was the the real winner in the you know in the group of companies that they had, and Japan's actually turned out to be the, the best place. So, and they'll get other businesses in Asia. So it's it's still got a long long way, long way to go. Mm. It's a very insightful discussion because it kind of gleans out a lot of the qualitative aspects that you really nailed in terms of determining whether or not Domino's would be a great um, business. One being Don was, he found a way to achieve high returns on capital for each franchise and mm. it was super scalable and yeah. it was a matter of him just replicating that. And that comes from him having that background um, working as a manager at a franchise store and then yeah. kind of reflects your background as well. Like having been in a business, you, you know and what works and what doesn't. Yeah. And he was just um, he was just one of those dynamic personalities. You just knew that he, it was a game of inches. He knew how long it took to cut a pizza. He said, okay, yeah. take two seconds off. Okay. Like he designed a different knife to cut a pizza, which made mm. pizza like two seconds or five seconds quicker or something. You know, he was just so into the minutia of the inches that he needed to, to get into. And I didn't know this at the time, but um, if you look at, the nomad letters, which you know, with um, Nick Sleep, where he's sort of very renowned for finding Amazon and Costco with this, you know, cost saving shared. Mm. Um, but he had two other theories he came up with, and one was uh, a dominant, um, dominant scale 
which led into um, dominant marketing. And that's where Domino's, so Don May is very clear that Domino's Pizza is a high volume business. It is not a, he's not competing against the mum and dad making the best Italian pizza mm. in the suburbs. That's, that's not his competition. He is a high volume business. And so, and he's translated that into also then being able to just spend money on advertising that those competitors just can't. So, yeah, when you're thinking pizza, you just become top of mind because you're just spending that on advertising all the time. So you, you mm. get the scale as well. Mm. I think it's in the name because his name's Don and it's in the words of Domino's and it's dominant. So <laughs> the Domino's has been around for a long, long time. And what I didn't, uh, I, I didn't appreciate at the time, but I certainly do now, is um, uh, oh, the, the large shareholder, Jack Cowan, Having Jack Cowan there, I think Jack Cowan will be one of the most underrated business people in Australia. Um, you know, he had 25% of that business he bought, you know, paid $400,000 for it. He's never sold a share. Um, you know, it's worth over a billion dollars these days. But what he did when he came to Australia with KFC and then um, Hungry Jack's, um, I think he's an extraordinary businessman. There's, a, there's some presentations he's given on YouTube and there was a podcast recently on um, um, the AFR one. Um, he's a very underappreciated, and I I didn't appreciate how much he was part of the Domino's picture at the time, but mm. I really appreciate that now. He, they were, Dom was very lucky to have um, Jack in his corner as he built the business. I just wanted to touch touch on the cultural aspect of it um, when you said there was a shift of a lot of I guess developed countries wanting to um, embrace the Western culture and. So my parents are from, um, they lived in Hong Kong. And when I went back to Hong Kong, a lot of the more expensive restaurants like Domino's were like people were obsessed about it. Um, and you could see it in a lot of countries when you travel around, actually. So it's a very interesting point you make about that. And it's another qualitative you know, aspect that you can only um, get from really understanding and observing and the environment around you rather yeah. than being in models and spreadsheets. Well, so I'm, I'm not the target market for Domino's. I don't buy a Domino's pizza, even when they send us our vouchers in the mail sort of thing, but mm. um, but I know my son, um, you know, mm. he gets his mates and they've had a few beers. Well, it's just Domino's pizza. You know, I'm, Don said to me once, he's, I said, what's your best-selling pizza? And he said, oh, six meats or something like that. Mm. Um, and he said, and my second best selling pizza would be, I'd have an even better selling pizza if I could make it seven meats. You know, he said, it's just, it's young males who just want meat pizzas. And their biggest night of the year is State of Origin. The yeah. second biggest <laughs> night of the year is State of Origin 2. <laughs> it's just a, you, you just got to realise sometimes that, you know, you're not the target market and you can't put your eyes onto what does that product look like. I, I don't have, own a four-wheel drive, but I know people who do and mm. they are. It's just the go-to product. Um, so, um, you know, I just can't sort of think, oh, well, I don't own a four-wheel drive. Why would I pay that much for a, a fridge or a you know, suspension system? Or, mm. you know, I'm just not their target market. I've just got to appreciate how good these businesses are. Mm. In terms of understanding industries, you spend a lot of time trying to attend conferences or speaking to people in the industry to... Yeah, it's 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 not structured. Um, if I come across yeah. people, 
are in the industry, I'll you know talk to them and say, hey, how's this work? I've I've got a friend who has a four-wheel drive shop, so um, you know I'll catch up with him fairly regularly as to how how things are going. Um, I mean, ARB last year, as soon as COVID hit, um, you didn't have to be Einstein to work out the ARB for year because the people are going cruise ships. Uh, they're also the guys who got four-wheel drives and caravans and you know, the grey nomad. So, um, you know, I rang my friend and I said, uh, he's not a share market person, I said, if there's ever a time to buy ARB, this is it. Mm. And he said, yeah, business is going great. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> I said, well, buy these shares. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, um, and that sort of gets back to, I remember you, you wrote to me, you said, how do I do a discount cash flow? <laughs> yeah. I haven't done a discounted cash flow spreadsheet for at least 10 years and i'm probably being generous saying that yeah you know, and it sort of occurred to me that you know I've, I've owned arb for 20 years now and if i'd stuck in a discounted cash flow statement in 2001 when i bought the first lot of shares that, oh and they'll double their profit in the 20th year from now hmm. so i'm the biggest deal with the ford motor company which will probably keep the the growth rates going for another decade if not longer you couldn't Put that in the discounted cash flow model. Everyone would have put their three percent, four percent termination mm. you know, rate in their cash flow statement. Yeah, and ARB went and doubled their profit in the twentieth year of owned it. I've owned it, so so I don't do discounted cash flow statements anymore. I just it is just doesn't tell me what I need to know. Mm. It's interesting you say that because I think for me, like just starting out and not having that level of experience, I think for me, discount cash flow model is kind of helps me understand the business model and that's something i guess it comes to you quite quickly yeah yeah you're also very intellectually elegant for academics to teach in business schools as well you know yeah you get your head around and you know it's it sounds very intellectually elegant i i sometimes think that can be a trap that some people fall into mm. Mm. yeah i think um yeah i took yeah a lot away from this discussion, especially about your investing philosophy and I think the general investing community um, will learn a lot from, from this interview. But I think um, one important thing that I feel a lot of people perhaps um, not value enough is having good people around you. Um, so to close this off, interview off um who's had the most influence on your development um as a person and investor and and why um yeah well it's, it, that's a fairly sort of wide question and, and there's i've probably had different people at different times who sort of affected me so um i'd say from a yeah if you look at it through a long lens you know someone like charlie munger and warren buffett a, as an investor like they if you're going to look after people's money they're the role model of how that's how you look after people's money and probably to an extent walter schloss as well where they treated it as a profession and they looked after other people's money as if it was there you know, more like a doctor patient sort of relationship or an advisor sort of relationship so i think they've taught me how to um how to treat other people's money i'm not just playing games with it and you know that sort of thing um i've had um I've had some business partners where they've been very wealthy people and I think they've taught me how you should behave when you have got money. Um, 
Um, so, you know, you don't go, sort of go throwing your weight around and being arrogant. That's the thing. I've, you know, I've had some fairly good role models there where I thought, oh, okay, you, even if you are rich, you, know, you can still be polite and um, do that sort of thing. Um, um, what else? There's sort of the main people. I haven't, um, yeah, I, probably just those sorts of people. Where I've had some business partners and, and um, as I said, just looking at, how Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and Walter Schloss and Graham, Ben Graham, how they behaved, I just think that's the way to do it. Oh, and, look, I probably would give a mention to Greg Hoffman as well because Greg um, has taught me how to be a better writer, um, you know, how to think about what I'm writing about. He's certainly... So when you see that fund update at the end of three months, that's just not something I've knocked up in half an hour and just banged up on the website. That's that's taken quite a bit of thought process and it's taken um, some backwards and forwards, you know, you know, with Greg just sort of, you know, well, what are you trying to say here? What do you want people to take away from you? So um, so I'd, I'd add Greg into that, but on a different sort of um, plane. Mm. It's a stellar cast to have in the background. Um, I know that they've been role models, but, um, yeah, they have been. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think writing is an undervalued skill, um, especially in the investing profession. Um, I think I'm starting to learn or feel the uh, positive impact and benefit um, from uh, writing out your thesis and also just journaling as well. Um, yes. Yeah. I've tried. I'm trying to get to, with the fund updates, I'm not going to write about geopolitical things. Oh, the Federal Reserve said this, interest rates did that, currency did this, you know, this went up, that went down. I, that's the stuff of daily newspapers if you want to go and click on that sort of thing. Mm. I, I want the fund updates to be more... Well, when I'm writing a fund update, I've got a couple of unit holders in mind and I'm writing to them how, you know, what would they want to know, how the fund... You know, for some of my unit holders, they just want to see the front page, look at the graph, Look at the unit price and yeah, beauty. That's all I need to know. Couldn't care less. So I've got a couple of other unit holders who are interested in you know, what I'm doing and you know, what a business, which businesses I own and why do I own them. And so I'm just writing for them. But I try and really keep the numbers down to a minimum, and I'm just trying to you know make it a bit more evergreen that you can go back to these things in a few years' time and read them and so say, oh, okay, now I see why he was buying this or why, why how he thinks about that business model. And, and you'll see how the, then they layer. So as, a, as I said before, I owned ARB for 15 years, but because I'd owned that for 15 years, I think that allowed me to go and buy PWR because I could see what ARB, ARB had done and then what PWR had the potential to go and do. And I dare say that there'll be something else. And because I'd owned AUB, it gave me the knowledge then to go and buy a PSC. And there'll be things I own now where I'm sure that knowledge will layer. You know, I only come up with one good idea every five years. And I don't, you know, there's not a good idea idea out there every week. It's just mm. I'm fully invested and I've only I've come up with, you know, as I say, one one good idea every five years and don't burn any, you know, because that's all it needs to be. Um, mm. It'd be nice if there were more. You know, March last year, you just have to be buying. You didn't have to. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of good ideas out there last year, but um, yeah, not, not at the moment. So just, just keep plugging away and just layering, adding layers and layers to that non-compliance. Yeah, I look forward to seeing um, and reading your future quality updates. Um, I think you, what you do really well is trying to pass on that knowledge and your point of view and yeah. actually um, 
I guess teaching people the psychological mindset um, required um, yeah. and in investing. So, uh, look, if, I think if people comparing themselves to some of these guys on Twitter or you know, in the media, in gen- you know, social media in general, general, and thinking, oh, that guy's making a ton of money, I should be able to do that. It's not that easy, but you know. It's, it is easy buying shares. You just click buy or click sell, and you know, it is that easy, but it's not that easy to get those long-term results and, and not have a, um, you know, hit some um, speed bumps along the way. The potholes are probably more the case um, along the way. Yeah, definitely. I think these are really important lessons that um, I think any investor um, in the Australian uh, and New Zealand community or across the world um, should um learn from you and whether it be a novice or a professional investor so i really appreciate um the time that you've provided everyone with and i'm sure everyone's going to learn a lot from it appreciate the time as well you're welcome